this week on the Back Table Podcast. When I see patients now, I'm trying to educate them on misinformation. I tell them kind of a couple of things. Anytime you're online, the first question you you have to ask is just straight up, who am I listening to? The second thing is, what is my goal? What am I, what am I trying to get out of this video that I'm watching? What am I trying to learn here? And if the answer is, I'm trying to learn how to improve my sexual health or improve my testosterone, and I'm listening to a 20-year-old guy who's like just dancing to give information. Like if you take yourself out of it and you think of it that way, you're probably gonna be like, why am I listening to this dude? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Revivirex, providing urology-specific sterile and non-sterile combining services to the specialties of urology and fertility since 2016. They currently work with over 500 urologists in 36 states, servicing over 200,000 patients live. They pride themselves on service, quality, and innovation. Products like their ICI injections are lyophilized to provide temperature stability to allow for shipping, easy of travel, and fewer incidences of priapism compared to premixed formulations. Products RevivaRx produces include HCG, FSH, Trimix, Trimix Gel, libido enhancement for men and women, hormone replacement, and over 80 unique urology-specific compounds. All pharmaceuticals produced in our facility follow federal guidelines for sourcing, compounding, and dispensing. Find them online at revivarx.com. That's R-E-V-I-V-E-R-X.com or call 888-689-2271. Orders may be faxed to 888-689-1620 or sent electronically to RevivaRx Houston. Now, back to the show. This is Jose Ocha Silva's host this week. We're happy to have as guest this week, Dr. Justin Dobbin. Dr. Dobbin did his medical school at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, then went on to do urology residency at the University of Miami and Jackson Memorial. Then I went to do a fellowship in men's health andrology from Northwestern University Memorial Hospital. Currently, he works at Memorial Healthcare System in South Florida. In addition to providing patient care, he has his own podcast. It's called Man Up, a doctor guides to men's health, where he provides key information to patients about various men's health topics. Justin, it is a pleasure to have you as a guest today. Welcome to Backtable. Thanks, Jose. It's good seeing you again. We finally got to meet in person couple weeks ago and you gave a talk, I gave a talk and we really had a good time. It was really good to connect in person. So I'm glad we get to do this now. No, exactly. I mean, and and I think it's the second time I see you talk and I wanted to go first into how you became this guru. I mean, you just finished fellowship a couple of months ago, but you have become a really a social media guru. How did that happen? When did it start to develop? I just want to start off again. I love this podcast. I listen to it a lot. I learn a lot. So it's really an honor to be on here because you guys are doing something that is really important, providing really accessible information to urologists in a way that is really digestible as well. So thank you. 
So really what, looking back on kind of my medical journey, I kind of feel like in medical school, I was started to be inspired by social media when I read this book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. And really that book, when I was reading in medical school, it focuses on the resurgence of public shaming, but now through social media. And the idea was case studies of someone said something. There's a famous one of Justine Sacco. She tweeted something bad on a plane. By the time she landed, she was fired. Like she lost her job, everything. So that scared the crap out of me. And uh, when I was a med student, I realized at some point people are going to look online and they're going to find you as a doctor. I was like, maybe I should control my own narrative. So that was the first time I was inspired to go on social media. And I think that's one of the main reasons why a lot of people go on social media. You know, I was like, all right, let me just have a presence on here so that if someone Googles me, they'll see what I'm about in my own words. And so I started, you know, messing around with Twitter a lot. And going through med school again, I think we were all struggle with this idea of matching in residency, obviously, and making the appropriate connections. And for me, I think we've all been there before. You know, you're emailing attendings, you're emailing professors in and out of your institution. You're trying to do whatever you can to connect with people. And back then it really was hard, right? I mean, Jose, you've been there. So I read a book called Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi, and it's a networking book. And that made me realize, even though it doesn't talk about social media per se, it talked about networking and it inspired me. I was like, well, I'm struggling to communicate with people through email. I'm struggling even to show up at their office. Back then you would have to show up their office or you would email their secretary was a big one because they were the gatekeeper. So I was like, why don't I just start tweeting at these people or messaging them online? Because like, I see them there. Maybe I could just start doing that. So I started networking through social media to try to reach out to people and connect with people. And it actually started working. So I was like, oh, wow, here's another benefit of social media. So I felt really inspired. And as I, and I started using it a little bit more. And when I got to University of Miami, you know, social media was starting to get bigger. And uh, I offered to provide my services for the University of Miami Twitter uh, account. So I was like, hey, I'm happy to do this. I was like a first year. And I started doing that and I started changing my perspective a little bit to a more professional aspect, advertising for, for urology, what urologists want to see, what I would want to see if I was an applicant. And then I started seeing all these potential benefits and I eventually reached out to people on social media, Stacey Loeb, Dr. Ramasamy was my mentor at Miami, who was very supportive and worked with him and worked with Jeremy Teo, who is over in Hong Kong. And through social media, I got to work with all these people who I had never met and we did a lot of research and I expanded upon the benefits and it kind of just went from there. And it's really been an amazing journey. It's really put me in touch with some amazing people. And I think the key for anyone trying to do this stuff is really be your authentic self. I try to be very positive and I know people have their own voices and that's how you want to be. And I think that you can achieve success in many ways, but I try to be positive. I try to be informative and try to be myself at the end of the day. And it's kind of worked out. Yeah, I think it was at the AUA, you mentioned that you started doing research with uh, Dr. Loeb, Stacey Loeb, without actually meeting her. Yeah, so five years. Yeah. We've pu <laughs> we published like literally like eight, nine papers. No, like probably eight papers together. And we hadn't met her. I had not met her until AUA of, of this year. So it's pretty crazy what you can do nowadays with people. And I think the thing for, you know, 
residents listening or med students or fellows listening is like, you should never be afraid to ask. It can't hurt to ask to reach out. I've worked with people who I've never met before by them reaching out in my, you know, Twitter DMs. And I've collaborated with a lot of people that way. And I think the barriers to entry for communication are so low now. So if you're interested in doing something, reach out to that person. They're, they're going to be more responsive now, especially on social media. So, so when you finish uh, the fellowship, you, you needed a job. Yeah. Did you use social media also to get a job? How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did not. That okay. was, uh, that was uh, just job things, I guess. Um, so for me, having done my, I was at my chief year at University of Miami. I'm originally from New Jersey, as you said. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of people from New York and New Jersey, I, I always pictured myself going back Northeast. But when I moved down here for residency, It just felt right. I, I wanted to come back down and I knew I was going to Chicago at Northwestern. And I felt like there was, it was time to start looking for jobs. And I was fortunate enough, you know, I reached out to Dr. Ramasamy. I, I was talking with him as a mentor. I was talking with the guys at, you know, Dr. Brannigan, Dr. Bennett, Dr. Halpern over at Northwestern. And we were kind of all brainstorming and talking. And, you know, Dr. Ramasamy was nice enough to put me in touch with some of these people down here at Memorial. What I was looking for in a practice is, is uh, a men's health. I really wanted to focus on men's health. And I know that's really hard to do. You know, a lot of guys who do men's health are either in academics and they're just doing men's health or they are in private and they're doing mostly general with like a dabbling of men's health. And so for me, I looked at a lot of jobs and for, and I think what's important for people listening who are looking through that job process is like everyone's priorities are different, right? It could be location, it could be family, it could be, you know, income. There's so many different variables and I think they all do play a part, but you know, someone has a priority and realistically for me, I'm a single guy. I think location was for me the most important. My family is all over the place. I mean, well, they're in New Jersey, but I have family in South Florida. I thought I wanted to try and come here. I thought that there was a, an area above Miami that needed men's health. And after talking with Memorial, you know, they were trying to expand and they really were interested in bringing a men's health specialist on. Oh, okay. Well. And so I think I got lucky. I mean, let's be honest. I think there is some luck. I looked at other positions and a lot of them were more general. You're right. And I do want to do academics to some degree. And the healthcare system here has a built-in residency for other, you know, general surgery, internal medicine. So we are hoping at some point to work on a residency program here. I think it was a good fit for me at this time. I got the location. I got the men's health practice. And obviously, you're creating something from nothing. No one's done it here before. So, so there's definitely growing pains. I only started in September. So there's, a, there's still a lot to do and a lot to learn. But I'm kind of having fun doing that. You know, I, I think that's also a big part of what are you looking to get into? Do you want to get into a program that's just going to be, the wheels are running, you're just jumping on board, or you want to start something from scratch? In this part of my life, I felt motivated enough. I felt like I had the time to do it. And so here I am. And when we talk about a men's health practice, are you trying to copy what you had in Northwestern? Are you trying to create your own? Are you getting a, a couple of things from other practices and trying to create a, like a mingle of all those things that you have learned throughout the couple of years? It's a great question. And for me, from where I trained, I was lucky. Um, you know, Dr. Ramasamy did pretty much every, you know, he did the infertility, he did the sexual medicine. And so I got that kind of men's health clinic where 
I think everyone now, he just won the gold Cisco. The guy has a master in men's health and he's a wonderful mentor of mine. And then I went to Northwestern where I had, you know, a combination like Dr. Brannigan now does a lot of men's health. He does mostly male infertility. Dr. Bennett does sexual medicine mostly. And then Dr. Halpern does a combination of both. So I got a really great flavor of the different ways in which these practices are run. As the only guy, I kind of have the benefit of making it whatever I want it to be, like you're saying. And and I think that I'm kind of trying to bring it together a little bit of Dr. Ramasamy is a little bit of, you know, Dr. Brannigan, Dr. Bennett and Dr. Halpern combining it. But yeah, my goal is I really want to be a one-stop shop for men's health. That's my pitch, right? And that's what we're changing, right? You're not, a lot of guys out there, a lot of urologists, we're not using sexual health anymore. We're not just using infertility. We're using men's health urologists. I was listening to your episode with Dr. Clavel and he said, he always said men's health. And I think it's because, you know, we can in many ways approach it from many different angles. You know, I see a guy sometimes for BPH and all of a sudden I'm treating his ED. I'm working him up. He's, he's obese. He's never gotten checked for diabetes. I'm ordering a hemoglobin A1C. I'm checking his testosterone. A lot of guys don't want to talk about their health. And the, the one opportunity that we do have to talk about their health is actually when their penis isn't working, right? Erectile dysfunction often is the first thing that guys will come for. And I have a joke, like I tell a lot of guys, I'm like, hey, do you have any medical problems? And they're like, no. And I'm like, when was the last time you saw a doctor? Yeah, no, never. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, it's been about 25 years. I was like, oh, so, so you, <laughs> you don't have any problems until you see a doctor, right? So exactly, it's one of those situations. So we have an opportunity and that's going to be my approach, you know, whether it's male infertility, sexual health, low testosterone, whatever it is, we can try to help you out. So you will do BPH also. I mean, you want to do the, the entire scope of being the gatekeeper for men's health. Well, listen, I, I think we're, I'm very early on in my practice. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think yeah. that there's always going to be a general urology component. I think in any urology practice for the most part, unless you are truly purely academics. So yeah, I'm just starting. I'm going to take whatever walk. Oh, it's in the door. I'm I'm happy to see BPH. But the thing for me, when I see BPH, things I'm thinking about, I'm not going to be the whole up guy, but I want to consider giving you, when I'm thinking about your sexual function, I want to be offering you, whether it's Resume or Ural, something that I can preserve your sexual health, right? So that's the angle that I think I could bring when I'm doing BPH, right? You know, I'm the first guy, a lot of guys for BPH won't ask about their sexual function. I'm the first guy. I'm like, or do you care, especially in South Florida and Florida in general, you know, like a lot of these guys do care about their ejaculation and that they really care about ejaculation preservation. So that's the first question I'm asking when I'm hearing BPH. So I think it's just a different twist on how to approach the same problem. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't want to start talking about BPH. No. <laughs> I have seen that. I've been doing more, more Euroleft and Resume and it's just because of that. I mean, People, a patient's trying to preserve ejaculation. I always ask them, hey, are you, are you going to have kids? No. Does it matter? But, but really, it does matter. And it's, it is important to have that talk. It's a great point. Justin, do you remember what was your first patient you saw as in, in private practice? Ooh, my first patient was actually a testosterone guy. Okay. Um, I've seen a decent amount of testosterone guys already. I think there's a huge need. And one thing that I did when I started, because I thought, you know, there was no one really managing testosterone here. As I went to the primary care offices, because I'm in a healthcare system, so it's great because all I have to really know is 
let them know that I exist and, and that they're going to be willing to help out. You know, I went to the endocrinologist, went to their grand rounds, introduced myself. You know, I'm giving a talk on testosterone to the uh, primary care doctors. I actually just read, I found whoever got myself a primary care doctor appointment just to, you know, and I go to the primary care that I'm going to tell my patients to go to. There's a lot of things that I've started to do. You know, I looked at people who are at higher risk for things like low testosterone ED, right? Cancer patients. I reached out to the oncologist, you know, if any of them had radiation or chemotherapy or just cancer in general, have them see a, a men's health doctor. HIV patients. I've actually seen a decent amount of HIV patients because the testosterone guidelines per them, you know, we know that they are at higher risk for low testosterone. So there's a lot of different ways in which I started to approach seeing these kinds of patients and getting people in the door. And, and I think really at the end of the day, it's obviously it's bringing people in the door, but it's really helping people who maybe we're not going to ask the questions to get help otherwise, but prompting these other physicians to start thinking that way is going to help their patients in the long run. And definitely, I mean, you bring up a good point about the physician getting to know, because most of the time they think even the physician today is normal, is part of your aging, which is not true. I mean, right. there are things that we can do to make you feel better. You, you don't need to feel tired all the time. You don't need to have low sexual desire, all that. I mean, but it's good what you're doing, like teaching that physician, that uh, primary care, and then having them send those patients over. Justin, in terms of, I mean, what are the criteria, labs, what do you do for a patient with low testosterone or with low testosterone system, symptoms? Yeah. So I think really it's important to understand as a urologist, and I think we're going to see more and more and more testosterone, right? The data is really showing that this is becoming more popular. You know, we know that testosterone levels decline in men as they get older. Lower levels are also associated with you know, other health issues, like I mentioned, obesity, diabetes, HIV, cancer, all these things. You know, The data also suggests that approximately 20% of men under the age of 40 may are, are at risk for low testosterone. You know, The Baltimore Longitudinal Aging Study actually showed that the incidence of hyper, hypogonadal T levels is about 20% in men over 60, 30% over 70, 50% over the age 80-year-old men. So it's prevalent, right? But testosterone replacement therapy is actually becoming very popular as well. You know, there was a study showing that from 2003 to 2013, testosterone replacement therapy use increased fourfold from the ages of 18 to 45. That's a pretty young population and actually threefold in older men than that. There's data su suggesting that nearly 12% of men under the age of 39 receive a testosterone prescription. So I think it's really important as urologists to understand if you treat men, someone's going to come in the door probably with low testosterone or at least interested in, in testosterone treatment. When we're talking about, you know, how do you start treatment, the criteria, you know, the guidelines really state that you need two things in order to diagnose someone with testosterone deficiency. One, you need to have a low testosterone levels. The AUA guidelines say less than 300. And the guidelines also say you should have two levels less than 300 to consider initiation of treatment. And then you also have to be symptomatic, right? There are exceptions. We did mention, you know, HIV, diabetes, obesity. These are potentially things that in themselves can lend themselves to treatment. But signs and symptoms are important. You know, we're talking about decreased energy, decreased libido, erectile dysfunction, focusing issues, body hair loss, gynecomastia, depression, and obesity in itself is one. So you got to be two for two for the most part. And then you would be considered a good candidate for testosterone. 
Exactly. And for those patients that you're going to start them on testosterone, and, and you mentioned those young patients. Yeah. Do you have, I mean, let, let's say a patient that, that still have, want to have kids, is in the 20s. Are you doing testosterone in these patients? I mean, or are you doing Clomid? What, what are you doing with these patients? We'll get into it later when we're talking about telemedicine. But I think also as a male infertility doctor, this is like probably the most important question you can ask, especially in South Florida. In Florida in general, Jose, you definitely see this. You see the guys, they come in, they're worried about fertility issues, and you're getting their history and you ask them any history of testosterone usage. And they're all like, yeah, I'm, I've been on it for like three years. No big deal. And these guys don't know that testosterone replacement therapy can cause infertility. So the first thing I always ask guys when you know they walk in the door, it really doesn't matter the age. I ask if they're interested in testosterone replacement. I say, are you interested in having kids in the future? I asked a guy today and he laughed at me. He's like, I'm 70 years old. I said, this is Miami, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've yep. seen it. Like, yeah. I'm like, dude, I've seen it. I've seen it. So it's not my place to judge. I just want to know that we're on the same page because I have seen many guys who have asked that question. Even at Northwestern, I've seen a 72-year-old guy walk in the door and say, I have low testosterone, but I want to have a kid. So, you know, you always have to ask that question. It's just really important. So just as a side note, for guys who are on testosterone and they're interested in fertility, 60% of guys on testosterone develop azoospermia in their ejaculate. And we don't really know whether, you know, they had unproven fertility, most of these guys, so we don't know what their baseline was. The good news is about 90% of them recover after about one year and most of them at two years, but still really there's no guarantee. You know, there was a study saying that, you know, a majority of these guys don't really get back to their sperm counts as before too. So it's just something to consider. So when I ask, and if they say that they're interested in, you know, future fertility, I think there's a couple of factors involved, right? Are they trying to have kids now? If they're interested in current fertility, I'd probably get a semen analysis as well, just to see what's going on. And usually I will start someone like that on Clomid. Obviously, HCG is an option, but since they changed the laws with, you know, you can't get compound pharmacy HCG anymore, it's really, really expensive. So I usually start with HCG. But, you know, some of these guys, you'll see guys occasionally who are on TRT, they don't want to get off the testosterone, they're interested in fertility. So, you know, those guys, you can always consider adding HCG as well if they're not so gung-ho about getting off of it. But I would always get a semen analysis. I would try to get them off. But there's some guys, I'm sure you've talked to them, that they just don't want to get off testosterone too. So No, they, they, those that have been doing it on their own for most of the time, right? they'd rather go see somebody else than to stop testosterone. And those are the ones that are more challenging in terms of follow-up because they probably have running, very, uh, running high on testosterone levels. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, and those patients, even if, if you drop a little bit, let's say if they're in over 1,000 or 1,500, but if, if they go down to 1,000, maybe they have symptoms of low testosterone. Well, listen, you're going to always feel good when you get higher. So like, yeah. so like it's hard to convince a lot of people when, you know, you, we, the guidelines say 450 to 600 is, is the goal. It's hard to convince people to say, hey, you're sitting at 1,500, 2,000, like we got to take it down. And some of these guys, you know, I tell them straight up, it's like, listen, I cannot give you testosterone if that's where you're sitting. I'm not going to do it, you know, because that's the way I practice. You know, if you want those levels, you're not going to get care for here because I don't want to put you at risk. And I think it's okay to have those kinds of conversations because I think a lot of those guys will find ways, even if you, you give them the testosterone, it's developing trust and explaining that you can put yourself at risk for, you know, 
stroking out, heart attack, and, and a lot of those guys aren't wa appropriately watching their hermatocrits or anything like that. So it's hard. And if you know you feel like these guys aren't going to be listening to you and they're sitting at these levels that are super therapeutic, I tell them straight up. I say, listen, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it my way. Otherwise, you don't get the testosterone. Patients that have elevated hematocrit, when you were in training and in fellowship, do you guys stop testosterone or just have them donate some blood? In practice, we had at Northwestern, we, you know, we had a sheet. We would don't have them donate blood. But there's always things, right? Some guys may be persistently giving blood and There's things you can consider doing, right? Lowering the dosage if they're at a maybe a little higher end of the of the levels of testosterone. You can consider changing the kind of administration. I think there was a paper that came out recently showing that, you know, if you're giving weekly instead of doing weekly, you do it two times a week, you're keeping those levels, you know, you're you're decreasing those peaks so that your uh, polycythemia doesn't, you know, your erythropoiesis isn't going higher. So there's different approaches you can take, but in general, I'll do a blood donation. Are you doing testosterone for patients with prostate cancer? I have a few with rapture radiation and, and... Yeah, and, and tell me how far out were they from their treatments for you? So the earliest that I have started is one year. And I start at a very low dose. But it's those patients that come to me saying that they feel very, very bad. They're not functioning. It's not worth living. I mean, I have one that told me that specifically. I mean, in those cases, I think that's the first patient that I started on testosterone after prostate cancer. It was a patient told me that it wasn't worth leaving. He felt so bad and he's doing good. No, I mean, listen, the data really suggests that, first off, when you're counseling patients at all about prostate cancer, before you say they don't have prostate cancer, right? It's very important to counsel them showing that, you know, testosterone replacement does not cause prostate cancer. Obviously, there is a connection between prostate cancer and testosterone, but it is not a causative association. And really, when you look at the data, more and more data is really coming out now suggesting that testosterone therapy in men that have a history of prostate cancer, it does not appear to increase the rate of recurrence or progression. You know, there's a lot of studies coming out, guys on active surveillance, you know, guys post-prostatectomy, post-radiation, and it's been looking like it's it's fairly safe as long as you're monitoring appropriately. I think most of it is focusing on low-risk disease patients and giving them testosterone. I think I, at Northwestern, I saw a guy, I think, on active surveillance. You know, you have to really talk with these guys. Like, you have to sit down and you have to talk with them and stress the importance of following up closely, getting a PSA, and making sure that this is something that everyone's on the same page. I saw a couple guys here post-prostatectomy. They're about a year or two out, feeling very low, have low testosterone, and I have had that conversation. Their PSA is zero, and I said, you know, if you feel if this is something you want to do, let's do it. And and I have been monitoring them. You know, once again, I just started. So far, so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, I think I think we do have to kind of have that paradigm shift that there is life after cancer. I think is the big thing, and and as men's health specialists. Uh, a lot of my job is, and a lot of men's health specialists' job is to improve the quality of life, right? The oncologists are making sure the quantity is there, but we're, we're here to make sure, you know, there's life after cancer. You can have a great sex life after cancer. You can have kids after cancer. You can have energy and feel like you're thriving and go to the gym. But obviously, these things have to be very thoughtfully done. There has to be really good communication with the patient. And there has to be a lot of agreement. You have to be on the same page and there has to be this sense of trust amongst you and the patient. 
Exactly. And I, and I seen patients that they've been seeing all urologists and for some reason they, I mean, they move from their hometown now that they're in Florida and they have a penal implant, uh, but no sexual desire. Yeah. I mean, I say, I, I have this here. It doesn't work. Well, I check it. I mean, it works fine. It's just that the patient doesn't have any sexual desire at all. And in those patients, I mean, definitely have the talk. And I was telling, hey, testosterone doesn't create cancer. Yeah. And you, you start from that and then you go and then, hey, we need to follow up. And I mean, at first I, I started every three months and making sure that the PSA didn't go up. Now I'm doing every four to six months. Yeah, no, it's a good point. But I, I also like your point about the guy with the IPP because I think we all have seen those patients where you, you know, whether it's not, a, you know, you're just a general urologist and you're asking about erections and that guy will be like, I don't have any desire. Like, don't worry about it. We're good. Let's move on. It's like, no, he just literally told you a sign of maybe having low testosterone. Maybe investigate that more. Maybe he wants to have sex or maybe he has the desire to have the desire to have sex, but it's just skimmed over, like you said before, because that's part of getting old, but that's not necessarily true. That doesn't have to be that way. Exactly. And Justin, you mentioned you're doing a lot of telemedicine. I want to. Okay. <laughs> So I, I would like to do telemedicine. I think telemedicine is really the way of the future. You know, I'm having a meeting trying to get that going here. But uh, at Northwestern, we did a lot of telemedicine. At University of Miami, I know they're doing a lot of telemedicine. And I think that there's a lot of value, especially for things like testosterone replacement, because a lot of guys and, and also for men's health in general, because, you know, when we're talking about the benefits of telemedicine, it really makes sense for men's health because you have incredible access to care. It's easy. Guys can do it from the safety and comfort of their home. And men's health topics, ED, you know, low testosterone, sex problems, they don't want to go to an office and sit there and be like, oh, these guys are, know why I'm here because my penis doesn't work. And that prevents people from getting in the door. But if you do a telemedicine, they know no one else knows that they're there and they're probably going to be more willing to go there. And you know, it's become apparent that this is is big. You know, since COVID, really, telemedicine has increased. You know, we did a study during COVID that we showed that, you know, there was a threefold increase in telemedicine usage by urologists alone. But when you really look at telemedicine companies, that growth has been even more significant. From 2017 to 2019, there was a 1,500% wow. increase in online visits to direct-to-consumer platforms treating erectile dysfunction with over 11 million visits to them in the fourth quarter of 2019 alone. And that was before COVID. So think about what those numbers are now. I think that we have to acknowledge these benefits, but we also have to understand the pitfalls, right? You know, those things include the ability to perform a physical exam, which may be necessary for a lot of stuff, you know, especially for male infertility, right? Like, do you have a varicocele? How, do I, how am I going to do a varicocele if I don't do the exam? Testicular size can be important, right? For function, the ability to administer specific medications or some technological barriers are still there. Um, and there's always medical legal. But that kind of led us to do this study that just came out looking at these telemedicine clinics. Because the difference is when you're talking about erectile dysfunction, you're talking about things like hair loss. These are medications that personally, I'm not a big fan of finasteride. I think most urologists are turning the corner on finasteride because of the risks of post-finasteride syndrome and things like that. Still, that and you know the other companies that do ED, you know, Viagra Cialis, pretty benign. Overall, they're pretty benign. But when you're talking about testosterone, we're talking about a class three controlled substance that has higher risks. 
So we wanted to kind of investigate that and, and really see what was going on and whether these telemedicine companies were, you know, appropriately evaluating patients for testosterone deficiency and coming up with an appropriate counseling and diagnosis and management of patients. So, so I was going to say every morning I, I drive to, to the hospital and I listen to this sports radio show. One of the commercials, I mean, it's not a, a, a telemedicine, but it's a, an actual place. And what they say is that the owners are one retired firefighter, one retired police, so you know that they're trustworthy. And that's what it, that the, the actual commercial. That's crazy. So, and and it, it is for testosterone replacement. Since when you go to your to have an ex-firefighter talk about andrology, and, and it goes from what you're seeing. I mean, you mentioned your study. It's crazy what's going on with medicine right now. Well, I think when we're talking about men's health, it is just this idea, right? Like you just nailed it on the head. Like what sells? Masculinity sells, right? Like you got Liver King going online talking about he's never done testosterone. That guy just found out does more testosterone than like five people combined. Yeah, yeah. You have all these people who are like the peak of masculinity. Firemen, you know, police officers, those are masculine guys, right? Like, you know, it's this idea that masculinity sells masculinity and- more than ever, we're on this sense of fringe science, fringe medicine, where you have this idea of biohacking guys or using medications. And I'm getting texts from people all the time like, hey, what do you think of this medication? I'm like, I have, or this like supplement. I was like, I have no idea what this is. And that, you know, people are stacking stuff and they're listening to these podcasts. And, and it's hard because when, when you want to be honest with your patient and the truth is, you know, there is data on these things and they'll be like, here's the data, but it's usually like mice data. So, you know, it's hard to really say like, yes, that's 100% inaccurate or 100% accurate. You just have to be like, I wouldn't recommend being the test subject on that. That's my personal opinion, because I don't know if that thing increases your testosterone. Is it causing infertility? I see patients all the time who come in for infertility and they say, hey, I'm on this Testomax supplement because I want to maximize my testosterone for fertility. And I say, listen, I'm okay with most like antioxidant supplements, but those are the ones that I worry about. Why? Because, you know, there's studies showing that the majority of those testosterone supplements, although claiming natural, have some component of testosterone in them because they're not regulated. So you're potentially harming your fertility, ironically. So I think you got to be careful with a lot of these things. But at the end of the day, I do think telemedicine in general is very good. I think it can be used very appropriately. Dr. Halpern, Dr. Fantanis, and I actually wrote a, a review paper where we gave outlines and, and guidelines for the algorithm for how we would recommend running telemedicine in a guideline practice way. I think there's a lot of positive things, and, and but you can't just take positives. You got to take the realistic stuff as well. The challenge that I have had in my practice uh, with telemedicine is most of the elderly population is difficult for them and we send them the link they cannot access their their email and at the end of the day i, I call them uh, on the phone hey your psa is this don't worry and i'll see you in, in a couple of months uh but but yeah but, it, but why would they have to come in why exactly. isn't that a crazy like do they have to come in and sit there for an hour and a half to just get the result that your psa is fine and i mean recently we had two hurricanes coming over orlando so I sat down looking at my, I see around 40, 40 uh, 45 patients daily. Most of the patients I could have just done telemedicine. Oh, 
70%. I said, well, I mean, why I'm coming to the office? I could just stay at home. <laughs> Isn't that a better quality of life for you too? It is. So I'm thinking how I can go there in the morning, just do cystoscopies, and then in the afternoon, just talk to the patient, follow up the x-rays, sick CAT scans, talk about testosterone, whatever labs and everything. So it is, I think, like you mentioned, it is easier, but also for us as physicians, I think it will give us a little bit of better quality. So Justin, I mean, talking about your paper, you went to social media. What exactly, I mean, can you, can you talk about the paper? So the misinformation one really came about because I started changing, you know, we talked about how I was interested in the benefits of social media, but I started seeing more and more online as, as a men's health guy, kind of those people that were texting me, hey, is this okay to do? Hey, is that okay to do? These are my friends. And I'm, I'm like, where are you getting this information from? And they're all like, oh, it's on like TikTok. I've just read this thing on TikTok. I read this thing on Instagram. And I'm like, who, who, like who though? And they're like, I don't know, just some guy like was on. And that started getting concerning. I was like, send me the video. So we started seeing this shift, especially during COVID, of people using social media and the internet. We always joked about Dr. Google, but I think for a lot of things, it's really ramped up, especially during COVID. You know, And the truth is, it's important to understand the quality of online information in any kind of medical situation, but in my situation, men's health, because you know, the internet is really where most people are getting their information. You know, 72% of adults use the internet for researching health information. And that's been about a 40 to 70% increase in users seeking information via digital online platforms since the onset of COVID. And in 2021, 72% of US adults use at least one social media site, including 66% of men. So, why should you care? Because literally everyone is online and they're looking for medicine and looking for health information online because they don't want to go to the doctor. They don't want to spend the money if they can figure it out on their own and they don't want to tell anyone they have a problem. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to look at the two of the more popular platforms today, which is really TikTok and Instagram. Both have over 1 billion active users a month. Both are video sharing platforms, obviously Instagram also photo sharing and in our study, we looked at six men's health topics that we decided upon, you know, testosterone, erectile dysfunction, male infertility, semen retention, Peyronie's disease, and vasectomy. And what we did is we evaluated the overall popularity in terms of views of each topic. And then we reviewed and characterized the 40 most popular posts of each topic to assess their accuracy. We were assessing topics and posts that we were deeming as considered educational in focus. Like we didn't you know, advertising didn't count. And what we really found was pretty concerning. You know, men's health topics on these platforms were obviously very popular, especially the topic of semen retention, which when we came to the term, when we were doing this study, like no one knew what the hell that is. And now it's becoming more popular. I think we're getting the word out, but it, it was by far the most popular men's health topic with over 1 billion views on TikTok and over 1 million posts on Instagram. And, you know, I was showing this and I remember sitting there working with like Dr. Halper, Dr. Brannigan, and Dr. Bennett. And like, hey, look, look how many people are like looking at semen retention. They're like, what the hell is that? Why, why, why is everyone doing it? And, but just as, you know, more concerning is, you know, the overall quality of the content on men's health was very poor. You know, the majority of men's health information was inaccurate. And when you look at who was creating the content, that really makes sense because the majority of the content was not created by any healthcare providers, you know, 
And interesting enough, though, that when we did look at the content that was created by healthcare providers and compared it to, you know, those who were not healthcare providers, the content for the healthcare providers was very accurate and overall really good. The question really becomes in like, how do we as physicians best address misinformation online? What are your thoughts? So, I mean, you, you, you have the amount of podcasts. I, I guess that's the only thing you can, because if the person receiving the misinformation is using those platforms, I mean, you, you need to use that same platform to correct what they're using. I mean, you cannot write a paper and publish it someplace else. Nobody, I mean, the, the, the audience is not going to read it. So you need to use that same platform to make it right, but it needs to be funny. You, you need to have a 20-year-old guy say it because they're not going to listen to a older guy saying, don't do semen retention. You need to, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, it, it's, it's crazy. Well, I think, I think this podcast is definitely helping because, you know, this is still, it's, it, although it's focused for urologists and physicians, anyone can listen, right? If they want to learn about a topic, I guarantee you this is such a great, podcast for a patient, say they're struggling with erectile dysfunction, say they're struggling with, you know, bladder cancer, and they listen to how that's treated. I think that's a very, very helpful tool too. So, you know, this is doing an excellent job, but I think you kind of nailed it on the head, right? It's pretty interesting. We're in a different time where, you know, physicians previously before the age of social media, you kind of, you know, your goal when you were doing papers and doing research and education was really education for other doctors other urologists, other med students, other residents, and you, you did your education of patients in the office, right? That's where it was done, and that's where you built these relationships. But now, where we know that people don't want to come into the office, they want to get their information elsewhere, and that information is very bad. You know, Dr. Stacy Loeb did some really excellent work on prostate cancer. Dr. Rena Malik did some other work with her as well, and we know that it's not just men's health, it's all urological topics have very bad information on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. It's all over the place. We have to start going where the patients are going. And if it doesn't have to be everyone. I think it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort. But I mean, if you're inclined to be that kind of person where, where you think you can make a difference, I think you know the way that we can rectify inaccurate information is by identifying it online and addressing it with accurate information. And we have some really excellent urologists already you know, doing that work, you know, Dr. Stacey Loeb, Dr. Rena Malik, Dr. Ashley Winter, and, you know, that's just naming a few. And I include you and Aditya in, in there as well, because you guys are just doing really awesome work as well. So I think if you are inclined to do this kind of stuff, I think it is welcome because the more the merrier and the more resources people have to listen to actual physicians or actual healthcare providers is very helpful. I think the other way, if you don't want to help out, like if you don't want to be online, I think that's great too, because it takes a lot of time and we know that all urologists are burnt out. If that's not what you value and it's not fun to you, you shouldn't do it. But I think as a urologist, you should be at least aware of good resources, good and accurate resources that are online that you can drive patients towards, right? You know, you have the Urology Care Foundation, you have the SMSNA website, you know, you have the SSMR website and they have patient-focused sections to educate patients on accurate information on all of these things. So if you can at least push it that way, that's important. But I think at the end of the day, the best thing you can do as a urologist working with your patients and hoping to you know, address misinformation is really 
provide medically accurate information through direct patient engagement, right? Medical information at the end of the day is a very personal and it's a very private thing. By creating a safe environment for your patient and where they feel open and they can talk about things that they may not otherwise talk about, you know, you're giving your patient and yourself the best opportunity to address any issues that they may come across online. It's important that, you know, when they come in, they're like, hey, you know, I saw this thing online. I was thinking about buying it. You know, it might make my erections better or make my penis bigger. What do you think? And then you can talk about it. But if, you know, if it's a cold <laughs> interaction and you're not asking those kinds of questions, you're never going to get there and they may go buy that thing. So there's a lot of ways in which we can do this together. And I think that it's kind of, you know, choose your own path or do all of them. So it's pretty cool. Exactly. And, and you mentioned the Urological Foundation. I think we need to do a, a better job targeting the younger guys. And not because they are the ones that really have a problem today, but they already are the ones receiving their misinformation through social media. Yeah. And they're going to continue looking for misinformation in social media and they're going to change it 20 years from now when they really have urological problems because I see them, you see them in your office, a 25-year-old guy that come to your office and say that he couldn't have a fourth or a fifth ejaculation. I mean, you know, <laughs> stand up and get out of the office. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's, that's where I get the burnout from. But, you know, you, you need to, to target those because those are the ones that are going to continue having problems in the future. And if they think that right now, I mean, the, the semen retention is a problem. I mean, imagine what they're going to read 20, 30 years from now. It's true. I mean, it's going to be crazy being a urologist. When I see patients now, I'm trying to educate them on misinformation. I tell them kind of a couple of things. Anytime you're online, the first question you have to ask is just straight up, who am I listening to? The second thing is, what is my goal? What am I, what am I trying to get out of this video that I'm watching? What am I trying to learn here? And if the answer is I'm trying to learn how to improve my sexual health or improve my testosterone and I'm listening to a 20-year-old guy who's like just dancing to give information. Like if you take yourself out of it and you think of it that way, you're probably gonna be like, why am I listening to this dude? So I think you have to try to put context in because it kind of is easy. I mean, listen, I've been on TikTok. You can scroll for days and you can get lost in it and be like, oh, this is a good idea. But a good idea for making a, you know, a nice dinner is a lot different good idea than, you know, than the guy who's recommending you do semen retention and increase your testosterone levels. But it can get lost in translation. So I think if you can educate your patients on how to approach medical health information online, you know, who am I listening to? What is my goal? Do they have any data to support their claims? Maybe we can start changing that narrative a bit. Yeah. And I think at some point, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen, but at some point, Instagram as, 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 a, as a company needs to be health responsible to some account, at, at least from this health side. I mean, it's very hard. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, it's so, so hard to do. How could you, you know, yeah. you have millions of people posting all the time, every second. It's just really hard. You can't fact check everything. And, and I don't think that it would be possible. I would love that. I think everyone would love that. But then, you know, who it goes back to like, Sometimes you don't know what's accurate and it's not. Like I said, these guys tell you about these, you know, supplements and there is data backed and but mice and I'm like, I don't know. And it's like, at what point is something misinformation or just 
information that should be interpreted one way or another that I don't I don't really know. So man, and if you tell the patient you don't know, then then you're you're not up to date. Correct. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, dude, I, I've been reading all these papers. You don't know what you're talking about. And I mean, it, it's okay to say you don't know. And I think that that's another problem, right? Like, it's like, I'm coming to see you. I've taken all these supplements. I've taken all these things. You don't know any of them. Like, how are you the expert? And it's like, it's okay to say you don't know, and you have to have a conversation with them. But you're not going to win every time because some people come in to, you know, they're going to take it. The best you can do is really try to educate them as best as they can ask what their goals are, right? That's always important. What is your goal? Why are you taking these things? Because maybe there's a thing that I know I can give you that is medically, there's research behind to help you accomplish that goal. You can always just change the frame of reference there or to kind of get to the heart of the matter. And Justin, how did your Posca came up? I mean, how, was it because of all this, trying to make a difference? I had a, a long time ago, I actually had a film podcast. I did it for over 10 years, just for fun. Oh, wow. It was me and my best friend when we came out of college. We did it for 10 years and then COVID, I never advertised it. I literally just did it for fun. Wow. It was just something I enjoyed. Probably had no listeners. It was fine. But <laughs> COVID happened, couldn't go to the movies anymore. And then, you know, we decided it was a natural end to that. I missed podcasting and along comes this misinformation train and Dr. Kevin Chu, who is my my co-resident at the time, you know, we kept seeing all this stuff with COVID, you know, and it was so interesting. And people were asking us information. And, you know, we were with Dr. Ramasamy, who was doing excellent information on men's health and COVID. You guys had him on very early on this podcast, which excellent podcast and excellent episode. And so, you know, we were in the heart of that with him and trying to understand how it impacts men's health. And there was so much misinformation that we thought there, there was a really good need to try to put out accurate information for men's health topics. Because as we've discussed a million times already, guys aren't going to the doctor. They want to hear information online. And podcasting is a great way for guys to do that. So we thought it was a approachable way for guys to get accurate information from actual men's health specialists to either satisfy their interest in, in a certain topic or really motivate them to go talk to a primary care doctor, to talk to a urologist, to talk to whatever, you know, provider that we bring on to talk about whatever topic. And, you know, we've had really good feedback so far. Uh, and I keep thinking about podcasting and YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and why these things have become more popular. And I think that a lot of it is patients want to take a more active role in their health. And sometimes they don't want to be at the office, but they want to feel like they're doing something for themselves. And I think that we're in a generation now where people don't want to read because they're not, it's, it feels passive. But by listening, by watching, you know, you're, you're pretty much, you're getting that personal interaction with someone. And I feel like that's where medicine's going. And, you know, when I listen to the, your podcast, you know, it, it feels like, you're talking to me. And, and that's different than just reading. And it's just much more digestible information. And I'm sure you've learned the way that you talk in these podcasts really helps out how you talk with patients in real life, because you're really trying to change the way that you talk so that it's much more accessible to people. One thing that I started learning from podcasting is that I truly believe that medical school, we made a huge mistake. We, 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 we did a 
huge disservice to physicians. I remember walking the first day of med school, and it's not just my med school, it's every med school. And they were like, you're going to learn 10,000 new words. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. But all of those words, who are they for? They're not for the patient. They're actually for other doctors, for you to like present stuff to residents, to present to attendings. And guess what? In the real world, you know, you're a private, I'm, I'm like in, in a healthcare system. How many times am I using big words to present to other doctors nowadays? You know, I'm so subspecialized. If I go, oh, this guy has oligoteratozoospermia, the endocrinologist is like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, I don't even know what you're saying. We're making up big words to just talk to other doctors just for training. There's no real value. So what I really started doing once I started the podcast is unlearning those words. I am like, hey, listen, you got a low sperm count. You know, you got low motility. You know, your testosterone's low. You don't have to use hypogonadal. No one knows what that means. So it's just kind of reframing it. And I think that all doctors should try to do that. And that's what I've learned from these TikToks, these Instagrams, because those are the people who succeed, right? The guys, the guys are listening to guys because they talk like guys. They're not talking like doctors. And, and I know we want to talk like doctors and we want to sound like the authorities, but there's kind of a fine line where we want to be a little bit of both. You know, like I do want to use big words. I do want to sound like I have a good bit knowledge base. But I think when you talk too high above a patient, they're not going to connect. Exactly. I mean, it might work with some, but definitely for the bulk, you need to talk in, in layman's and, and, and they need to understand and, and sometimes repeat it back. I mean, if, if you see that they're struggling, that they don't understand what you're saying, ask them, hey, what do you understand from what I'm saying? And, and go from there. Has your communication with patients changed since you've started the podcast? Of course. At least, so I always ask the other physician or the other urologist, in a special situation, how do you explain, for example, in your case, when they talk to you about supplements? Yeah. How do you react? I mean, so for me, if it's a 20-year-old, I, I stand up, I get, get out. But for a 55-year-old, I, I take my time and, and, and hey, I don't know about that. I explain, hey, I mean, re I always tell them, hey, remember, I mean, in med school, the pharmaceutical, because they, they always have that conspiracy theory. So I, I always pitch a little bit of that to them. They say, hey, remember that we, in the world that we walk in as a physicians, pharmaceuticals are really what we know. We don't know supplements. Some of them might work. And I always tell them, hey, I see the patients that those supplements fail. I mean, that's why you're here. You're not here because you're feeling fine and you wanted to see me. You're probably here because you already have a problem. And when we start talking, those patients most likely already have supplements before. I mean, if you want to continue wasting your money, that is that the insurance not covering, paying $50, $70 a month. I mean, go ahead, but we can try something else. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. And, and like, you know, there are supplements, especially for male infertility. You know, a lot of people are, you can do daily multivitamin, you know, coenzyme Q10, vitamin C. And, you know, the data is not great. Like the MOXIE trial came out and it really did not show that there was any benefit uh, taking antioxidants. However, you know, what I tell patients is if you are interested in it, the risk of anything bad happening to you is very low. The only risk is really at your wallet. Exactly what you said, right? Like it's taking money out of your wallet. But, you know, th there are things that I'm okay you taking, but I think it's important, you know, you have that conversation and, and, you, and you have an honest conversation about it. Exactly. For example, that could, the CoQ10, I started using it after a podcast. So, you know, it's, it's something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something, at least the patient thinks that there's there might be hope. 
and it's something that you can give them instead of just telling them wait around let's let's do the team analysis something that they can start taking in, in the meantime and they feel like that like like you care so justin a- a- anything else you want to add i don't know man this was really fun i had i had a really good time it was great Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to listening to all your episodes and keep them coming because I'm going to keep listening. I'm sure a lot of people are going to keep listening because you guys are really doing some some awesome work. No, no, thank you. And, and, and also kudos to you for, for what you're doing and what have you created in, in your short time as a urologist. I mean, I, I, you're going to continue going to the meetings and talking to everybody and getting to know everybody. And, and I think it's great. I mean, I couldn't believe when you told me that you just finished fellowship a couple of months ago. So <laughs> so, so definitely kudos to you for what you have created. And definitely that the, the, the podcast, giving the, the correct information to the patients, uh, that's also great for us. I appreciate that. Listen, I think the thing is uh, the urology community is amazing. I really think that I became a urologist just because of so many wonderful people are in this field. And if you're listening and you're like trying to get into the field or you're a resident and you want to communicate and you want to reach out to people, just do it. Because I can tell you that the majority of people here, they want to help you. They want to work with other urologists. And it's such a supportive community. You shouldn't be intimidated to try to connect with other people because literally no one's ever said no. Just taking a phone call, you know, reaching out and it's just a really great community. So I'm just lucky to be part of it. And uh, and thanks for having me on. Thank you, Justin. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.